Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm Morgan Wack, graduate student and co-producer of this podcast. On today's episode, I will be hosting a discussion with Will Gotchberg. Will, a recent graduate from the University of Washington, is currently a postdoctoral research associate at the Department of Political Science at Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome, Will. Hi, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Of course. Today, we'll be focusing our discussion on your dissertation research on land tenure and property rights in Sub-Saharan Africa. Your published work on these subjects will be included in the show notes for listeners. To start off, what drew you to focus on land tenure and property rights initially and to your focus in Sub-Saharan Africa more generally? Sure. So this could be a long story or short. I could give you the short version, but, um, uh, you know, I went to grad school. I went to, I did a master's at University of British Columbia, and uh, I still had very nebulous interests when I uh, was there, but I was interested in development and international relations and things like that. Um, but I was sort of immediately drawn to a class I took on environmental politics. Uh, and it was sort of a, the perfect intersection of things that I care about. Um, so poverty and inequality and development as well as the, the natural world, uh, but then also things like um, conflict and identity. Um, so then I, I got to the University of Washington and I was sort of uh, steeped in the comparative politics uh, faculty there who emphasize institutions quite a bit and uh, property rights in particular, um, sort of across the board. Uh, and I was sort of also at that time drawn back to studying Africa. So I, I lived in Namibia in 2009. I was um, teaching at a secondary school there uh, and it was fascinating and I, I learned a lot um, and it was challenging. Uh, and I sort of thought when I got to grad school, I might move on to other parts of the world or think more internationally, but um, you know, I just kept going back and back to thinking about Africa. Uh, and I was reading Catherine Boone's work uh, at this time, which has been uh, enormously influential on me uh, and really drawn to some of the puzzles and topics raised in her books. Um, and that's sort of like the, the sort of the general reason why I got interested in you know, Africa and land tenure. So that that's that's sort of the the long version of how I got to where I am now. <laughs> Perfect. For listeners, I focus on similar areas, not necessarily focused on property rights, uh, but I focus on Sub-Saharan African work. So I'm I'm really grateful that you're willing to join us today. Yeah, so just to give uh, listeners who may be less familiar with this area of research some background, can you explain the difference between private property ownership and customary tenure um, and the prevalence of these in Sub-Saharan Africa and how this ties into your work more generally? Yeah, sure. So yeah, property rights to land in Africa, uh, you can sort of split it into a few broad groups. There is private titling, uh, which is pretty familiar for those in a sort of living in from in the Western context, like the US, where it's, you know, private property rights enforced by the state, you've got a title deed to your house or land, whatever. Um, and within that, there's like freehold and uh, leasehold tenures, different sort of forms, but broadly, private titles of land. But then there's customary land tenure, which is um, customary authority is a domain of law that doesn't just cover land, um, but also things like marriage and inheritance, um, et cetera, sort of depending on the context. Um, and this is an area of law where uh, rights are adjudicated and distributed by um, customary authorities. So these are folks like chiefs, clan heads, um, kingdoms, religious leaders, things like that. Um, and 
these carry different legal weight in different countries, so there's quite a lot of variation. And uh, in some senses, it's subordinate to the state because generally the, the scope of customary law is outlined in a constitution in uh, most countries. Uh, but in practice, it's often pretty hard for African states to uh, eliminate customary authority, even if they wanted to, they don't always uh, necessarily want to. Uh, and customary land tenure is very common in Sub-Saharan Africa. So about 10% of land is under private title and the rest is either publicly owned by, by the government uh, or under customary tenure. So most, especially rural African landholders have customary uh, land rights. Great, but I'm wondering if you could explain for listeners why, why these rights are important conceptually and theoretically. Is this about a state expropriation issue or is this more hard to have to do with kind of private property investments? What would you say are the most important within the literature? Yeah, so the role of private property rights has been like, that's been a subject of study mm -hmm. for economists and political scientists for a long, long time. Uh, and within Sub-Saharan Africa has actually been the sub a subject of interest for uh, about a hundred years, I would say, certainly dating back to the colonial era, where there were a lot of reform attempts made by colonial powers to, to um, in their eyes, sort of modernize and privatize uh, property. So this was um, the case because of uh, basically two assumptions that were made both by governments as well as uh, scholars, uh, which is that first that individual private property backed by the state is superior to uh, customary land tenure and that it, it was sort of the inevitable direction of institutional change, that this is the way things were gonna evolve towards anyway. So uh, why not put in place programs to encourage um, titling of land uh, to register property, et cetera. So private land, uh, property rights were thought to be and have continued to be thought to be um, superior with regard to a number of sort of economic and political outcomes. So things like um, the size of land holdings uh, and the creation of efficient land markets, access uh, to property rights by um, disadvantaged uh, groups in society, and then maybe most important, or at least uh, the subject of a lot of interest is uh, investment over the long term. So basically the idea here is, um, the assumption was, or the argument was that private property rights would be more secure than customary land tenure, which would allow landholders to uh, have long time horizons when it came to making decisions about their land. So that would mean uh, things like planting crops that take a long time to grow, following fields, you know, planting trees, so this is both sort of has economic implications for um, making long-term investments that pay off in a, in a big way, as well as sort of environmental outcomes and sustainability. Um, but then sort of the, the way I see it is uh, late 80s through the 2000s, there was sort of this gradual recognition that customary tenure um, can be better, um, so to speak, along those dimensions, or at least as good as private property. Uh, and furthermore, that the, the, the moment of transition, that if there is this institutional change towards private property, that moment can be a real opportunity for the folks who already have power to further entrench themselves, mm -hmm. which is maybe no surprise to political economists who have been studying institutions for a long time. Yeah, that's interesting. So I wanted to ask you about that. I know in the early 2000s, maybe you say the 1990s, there was kind of a, a push by the World Bank and a few of these larger organizations to really focus on 
land tenure and property rights as a central tenet of growth in sub-Saharan Africa. Like you said, there have been mixed evidence whether this has actually had beneficial consequences due partially because communal tenure is such a broad definition. There are many different types and there's different effects on someone who has certain types of communal tenure versus others. And so I'm wondering, what is the current lay of the land in this field in reference to the benefits of privatization, both with rural and urban populations? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think even like, you know, as I said, the late 80s, definitely in the mid 90s, when you the work of like uh, Tim Besley and folks like that sh- was showing that, you know, customary land tenure could be compatible with long-term investments, with sustainable land use, uh, with relatively efficient markets for a number of reasons. Uh, Maybe most importantly, well, I'll just name two. First is that customary land uh, tenure arrangements, um, although they're often thought of as sort of unchanging and sort of um, uh, coming from pre-colonial eras, they're actually quite flexible in many cases and can adapt to changing circumstances quickly. Uh, and then secondly, we're often dealing with states that either have capacity reasons why they're not enforcing private property rights perfectly or uh, political motivations to selectively enforce private property rights. As far as w- what the scholarship looks like right now, it's really, uh, certainly, I don't think any anyone saying land tenure in Africa is, is willing to make sweeping statements about the relative efficiency of either of customary versus private property, and it's sort of a case-by-case basis. As you said, because the details of customary land tenure vary so widely, and really there's a bit, uh, there's a lot of nuanced thinking right now about um, the, the political side of this. So who who benefits from the customary system? How do they benefit? And, uh, you know, furthermore, thinking about how um, it's not necessarily obvious anymore that private property rights is the end destination of institutional change. So that is sort of, for me, mirrors work on democracy uh, and political science where for a long time it was just like, oh, like eventually places are going to democratize. And now it's like, it's a lot more nuanced. And so uh, there's been sort of a perspective shift. So instead of- That's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah, instead of thinking about why change is so slow, asking the question of whether there might be actually demand for the customary system over a private state-backed system instead. Yeah, so this leads, this is a good uh, segue into your dissertation work on this subject. So can you discuss for us the idea of social costs and how you brought them into the wider research on communal tenure and how you feel that this interacts with these complex phenomena? Sure, yes. Uh, The big part of my dissertation, uh, my job market paper is, you know, focused on this question of why, why don't more landholders title their land? And that's, it's a challenging puzzle in the first place because it's, uh, uh, again, like says who, like why, why should they title? But if we assume that we would expect to see landholders titling, the obvious reasons why they don't that have been widely argued are that it's the cost of titling, it's quite, it can be quite expensive, and the lack of credible enforcement, again, either for capacity or political reasons. Mm-hmm. And I don't disagree with those arguments, uh, to be clear. I find those very compelling, but what I saw when sort of looking at the data was that if you hold those two arguments constant or if you take those explanations and you look at uh, what's left, there's still some explanation that's needed to explain why rates of titling are so slow. So the argument I make rests on the fact that in nearly every case across Sub-Saharan Africa, when a landholder titles their land, it's a permanent removal 
of that land from customary hands. Uh, so it's quite costly uh, to say customary leaders who drive a lot of their sort of uh, authority over the power they have over land. But if I'm a landholder and I title my land, okay, that removes it from customary authority. I'm now subject to uh, any sort of property related laws that the, the state has set and enforces, but I'm still subject to customary law outside of land. So it could be that when it comes to marriage markets or inheritance rights or general dispute resolution or reciprocity, that you know I'm still interacting with my customary community neighbors, with customary leaders on a regular basis. And so the argument that I make is that in these seemingly unrelated domains, there's the possibility of facing costs uh, if you title your land. So if titling your land is harmful to a customary leader or to, to say like a chief or clan head, they might impose costs on you in these other domains. So it's sort of, uh, I see it as sort of analogous to uh, in international trade, the idea of issue linkage, that you create a, uh, an opportunity to uh, cooperate in one area. And if, you, if one party defects, they might find uh, costs in sort of unrelated areas of trade or whatever. So uh, another, <laughs> the analogy that always goes through my head when I'm thinking about this, which is not a perfect one, but occurs to me probably because I grew up in Minnesota with a lot of snow is that, you know, if you have a, a neighbor who in the summertime, like they have a tree with, with a, that's going over your property and it's angering you, like you might decide not to make a big deal out of it because in the winter there you borrow their snowblower or mm -hmm. something like that. Like these seemingly unrelated domains affect each other. And this is a way of thinking about a uh, customary land tenure that I think has, has not been proposed before and also implies a, a sort of coordination issue where if enough landholders are titling, all of a sudden perhaps the costs lower for you to title your land as well, because as more and more people sort of exit the customary system, at least take their land out of the customary mm -hmm. system, you may face lower costs as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think in a lot of other areas, the social bonds have been shown to be a lot stronger than we give them credit for from kind of an analytical perspective that we start off with. Um, and so can, can you give us a bit of background on how you kind of went about setting the foundations for this research, how you conducted the interviews, what types of experiments you use, not just for that specific question, but for your other papers and your dissertation as well? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I conducted field work in Uganda. And, I, and I'll say that one of the, the big challenges uh, before going over there, uh, and really when thinking about any of the cases that I might have used, um, is that the, the really fine-grained details of these of customary law systems are often not well spelled out in mm -hmm. literature. You know, I, you know, I'd be digging through as many like old anthropology texts as I yeah. could to try to find out like how is land actually governed? Like what happens if there's a dispute, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just so hard to find. Um, and given that these are your researchers on these social ties, I'm sure a lot of it is implicit as well. Rather than yeah, that. absolutely. So in any case, it, there was a bit of an element of going in blind, which is which a bit scary and perhaps something I wouldn't recommend to most uh, PhD students. But, you know, so I go over and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be paired with a really wonderful research assistant Philip Kiyomuro. And basically, I think what was helpful was doing a couple months of interviews to establish sort of the plausibility of my argument, 
because I think it, in the end, Uganda is a tough case for my theory. Uh, but also the, the exact nature of if there are social costs, what do they actually look like? Because if I'm going to construct a survey, I need to make sure I'm asking the right questions, right? And um, not spending time asking the wrong questions. Mm -hmm. So that would be hugely wasteful, both for me as well as maybe more importantly, the, the respondents. So I spent a lot of time doing that and uh, eventually fielded a survey uh, in four different districts of Uganda. Uh, two in the west and two in the east, and got uh, close to a thousand respondents, uh, which was a heck of a lot of work. Um, and I wasn't even doing the hardest work, I would say. Uh, my, my survey teams were. Uh, but then I, I supplemented that with a couple dozen interviews with landholders and with uh, clan heads, with sort of civil servants at the district level who work on land issues. And then I did uh, speak to a couple of folks at the Ministry of Lands in Kampala as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm sure you learned a lot about the process of land titling and also kind of set the stage for other questions that you're investigating now. So we can kind of shift a bit and we'll come back to the social ties argument, but I wanted to talk about your paper on dangerous grounds, evidence on the link between land insecurity and violence. Um, they say, is it if it bleeds, it leads. And this is kind of the opposite argument. You're making uh, or looking at evidence that shows that where the traditional theory um, would predict lots of conflict, there doesn't seem to be as much evidence for conflict. And so I'm interested, first, why you think it's important to look at non-events. Um, I have my own opinion on that. I think they're very powerful, uh, but I'd be curious to hear what you think. And then how this ties in, what your theory was of ethnicity and conflict and how this overlaps with Catherine Boone's work. Yeah, so definitely across a lot of different questions of interest in political science, you want to be careful not to select on the dependent variable, right? Mm -hmm. So like, um, if you study conflicts, you can't just study conflicts, right? You got to study places where we don't see conflicts. And here, I guess what I'm what I'm doing is responding to a theory that does suggest that conditions, at least on the face of it, conditions in Uganda especially in the West, where there is an oil boom occurring, where land values are rising precipitously, uh, that conditions there might be ripe for land-related ethnic conflict. And uh, certainly, I don't want to diminish the fact that there has been conflict over land, uh, but not necessarily of the type that is you know, predicted by the, uh, those theories. Uh, and so I sort of uh, took it upon myself to think about why that is and really responding to sort of an institutional uh, theory of ethnic conflict, which ha does have a lot of moving parts. So it gets, it gets mm -hmm. complicated quickly here, but um, uh, it was very compelling to me. You know, I, I've been interested in ethnicity and ethnic identity in a for a long time. I think probably going back to when I lived in Namibia and I, my mm -hmm. students would ask me what tribe I am. And I, I, that was a, it was a real head scratcher for me. And I had to think about, okay, first, how do I answer the question of, my identity and then how do I talk about tribes in U the US versus Namibia and like it, it go down a nice rabbit hole there. And I, upon starting grad school um, and reading a lot of work on uh, constructed views of identity, I, I found that so compelling and just so interesting and something that I saw, you know, day-to-day -day life. Uh, and so uh, this was an opportunity for me to sort of apply that interest uh, in my dissertation. Absolutely. So that's the, the institutionalist view of 
ethnicity and conflict predicts that the ethnicities will be emphasized when land rises or falls in value depending on the desirability of that property and i know it's much more complicated than that but is that roughly the sense that you get from the overview literature yeah so yeah that you pretty much got it so it it rests on this idea that identities are not static either in their their content but also their their salience at any given time mm-hmm. that they can sort of rise and fall in, in their importance over time and be triggered by events so yeah the Uganda is nice in that as i said there's a a big oil boom in the west the land values are going up in uh by like six times seven times their normal value and the uh, yeah the logic basically is that a threat appears a threat a threat to one's land rights and you know something we didn't maybe talk about explicitly when i was discussing customary land tenure is that membership in a certain ethnic community is sort of the basis upon which uh you you get rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, outgroup members like immigrants, uh, for example, would have uh, access to fewer rights. Like perhaps they couldn't pass on land or whatever. To to go back to the the institutional theory, there it's the idea is that you know a threat appears and then in group members, but you know presumably it's too costly uh, and to title their land in the short term as a way of protecting their land rights. So instead, they turn to their customary community to defend their land rights. Um, and this channels land conflict along ethnic lines is sort of, uh, that's sort of the way the argument goes, I would say. So for me, I was, you know, I'm reading these theories and we're, I was very puzzled about, okay, like that, that sounds so intuitive and really makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I'm really buying into an institutionalist view of how the world works, but like, how does that work in practice? Um, like how, like, if my land rights are under threat, how do I go about appealing to my customary leader, for example? Um, and why would they support me? Like if I've been slacking off, if I've been free riding you know, within my customary community, why would they ever respond to my appeals? So I had sort of had to think about both ways in which uh, an individual might do this and might try to sort of what conduct what I call identity maintenance, basically emphasizing their attachment to an in-group as well as uh, engaging in that group in a variety of ways. And then the limitations of that tactic, like uh, when would it actually work? When would it not work? Um, because the reality is, uh, as we know from the work of uh, uh, Jim Viron and David Layton, ethnic conflict is uh, pretty rare that if you look at different you know, pairs of ethnic groups across the world, the actual pairings that are associated with conflict are uh, very small relatively. Uh, and so this, uh, what I'm doing this paper, I think sort of helps to reconcile these two ideas, this institutional view of ethnic conflict uh, around land, as well as the fact that that conflict is actually pretty rare. So uh, what I argue in the paper is that there's actually very limited circumstances under which a landholder can engage in this identity maintenance. And what would this identity maintenance look like in practice? Yeah, so again, again, I had to think about this sort of in general and then like the actual details of what this looks like. Definitely, I could see varying pretty widely by context, but broadly what I'm thinking of is sort of first ethnic attachment. So I might uh, emphasize and identify more with my sort of ethnic group over sort of my nationality, for example. And that one, I it was nice because I could 
it's uh, the Afrobarometer has a nice question on mm -hmm. that uh, across Sub-Saharan Africa, which I, I use to sort of um, uh, test this. Uh, and I also include that same question in my survey. Uh, but then ethnic engagement would be things like uh, meeting with my clan head or chief. I asked about uh, donating funds to community events. And I asked about, uh, uh, whether or not people donated uh, their own labor. So they're like the number of hours they contributed to community like customary related uh, events over the past, uh, past three months, I think is how I worded it in the survey. So that would be a way to show your engagement, show that you are uh, contributing to the community and not just free riding off the efforts of others. So again, presumably the, the, the way the logic would play out is a threat appears to my land rights and I begin to engage in these act activities, these behaviors. So that's all well and good, but in my mind, uh, as I said, uh, why would a customary leader or your neighbors, if they're the ones helping out to defend your land rights, why would they do that if you have been free riding, if you have a history of, of uh, mm -hmm. not being the best community member? So um, is it even possible to change your behavior after a threat appears and get the help that you need? Uh, and I basically make the argument that in places where that kind of, kind of behavior is hard to monitor. So uh, then it's more likely to work. So for example, land rights in a place that are basically enforced by a chief who has a huge number of people um, under their authority, it's hard to monitor their day-to-day -day behavior. Maybe then it could work. Whereas if your land rights are governed at the clan head level, monitoring is much easier. Uh, everyone knows if you're a free rider or not, like then it's unlikely to work. And then secondly, when land is collectively owned, so when it's like truly communal property, these kinds of ethnic engagements and ethnic uh, attachments behaviors might work because even if you've been a free rider, if it's communal land, you might need everybody on board to defend uh, the land properly. So you're willing to accept sort of prodigal sons and daughters back into the fold to uh, uh, defend the land rights uh, in times of crisis. That makes a lot of sense. Did you find evidence to support the idea of identity maintenance? A bit, yeah. So I, I can drill down on sort of like maybe the most interesting findings because as I said, I, I conducted this survey and did interviews um, in four districts two in the West and two in the East. And if I, I think the most interesting findings come from the two Western districts. So this mm -hmm. is Bulisa and Hoima. Uh, and the, there's a huge um, amount of oil related activity there. You've got a new international airport being built, uh, an oil refinery, a whole bunch of pipelines, um, including a pipeline that's gonna go through Tanzania to the coast. So there, those two districts also are part of the same customary community, the Bonero Kingdom. Uh, so there we would expect to see, you know, matter, no matter what behavior we would see, we would expect it to be basically the same. Uh, but what we find is that um, we have differences at the district level. So uh, we see more evidence of ethnic uh, maintenance behaviors that I've talked about, uh, as well as threats of violence around land in Bulisa rather than Hoima. Uh, and the case that I make uh, in the paper is that um, 
pretty much all of my interview evidence suggests that Belusa, even though they're, they're part of the same customer community, there's much more of a history of communal land ownership there than there is in Hoima. If you go to Hoima and you talk to people, you know, land rights, you know, disputes are adjudicated at the clan level, but basically land rights are very individualized there. Uh, so this sort of uh, comports with my theory, at least to some extent, the results are not, you know, home run, it's not like, uh, you know, perfectly clear, but uh, it's definitely suggestive of uh, the, uh, the case I make in the paper. That's great. And you use a very interesting list experiment, which I enjoyed. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk more about the rates of, of violence. I know it's threats of violence that you specifically talk about in your survey. And I'm, the 22% number caught my eye when I was reading through this. That seems incredibly high to me, considering we talked about before how actual ethnic conflict over land is very low. Um, can you kind of adjudicate this for me or kind of explain to me why we would see threats of violence that are so high? Is it just because the rise in property value due to this oil influx or is this common across districts? Yeah, so, uh, and, and do you want me to explain list experiments or should I assume yeah, be, that Sure, I, I, sure our listeners are well attuned to list experiments, but maybe you can give us a brief overview. If not, they're, they're, they're fun to talk about. Um, uh -huh. all the, they're not always um, plausible, but you know, you have to take each one by case by case basis, I guess. So it's a way of trying to learn about behavior that's sensitive mm -hmm. um, that respondents might not want to talk about. And so you like you take your survey sample, split it into treatment and control groups, and uh, both groups are given a list of items. And in my case, uh, land related behaviors. And they're asked how many they have done in the past few months. So it's, they're not asked which of these have you done. It's just, here's a bunch of items. How many have you done? Uh, and the treatment group is given one additional item, uh, which is the question about uh, a sense of activity. So in my case, um, I asked about threatening violence because of a dispute over land. Uh, and you can then just uh, look at the difference in means between the two groups and directly interpret it as a uh, percentage of treated respondents who've engaged in the behavior. Because if, if everyone did it, the difference in means would be one because there's one additional item. Mm -hmm. If no one did it, it would be zero. So everything in between interpreted as a percentage uh, of, of prevalence. Uh, so you need to be careful to avoid either zero or sort of a max item answers in the control group because that uh, might lead people to be wary about in the treatment group of answering um, and including the sensitive behavior. Uh, and you, it's, it's nice because you, you, there's no ability to attribute the sensitive behavior to any one individual. So it's it's good for the, the safety of respondents. So the 22%, yeah, I, I it, it came out that um, between my, if I took the full sample uh, between the treatment and control groups, there is uh, a 22% uh, prevalence of people reporting that they had uh, threatened violence about a land-related conflict. So that, that did seem high to me as well. Um, and I think there's a couple things to say about this. First, uh, there is definitely some variation by districts. And um, actually it's, it's not quite as you might expect if you really think that um, rising land values are uh, the be all end all uh, because the highest rates of threats of violence were in Mbale in the east, eastern part of Uganda. Uh, where there is no oil boom. Um, and the, the lowest level of threats um, 
were in, well, actually there's no statistically significant level of uh, threats in Hoima in the West where there is the oil boom. Um, and then secondly, I asked about threats of violence uh, because I was worried that if I just asked about um, actual violent behavior that, that it was going to be still too sensitive even with all this experiment. So um, I kept it at threats. So I, I cannot make claims about the actual rates of violent acts among my, my survey respondents, um, which is, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. But it, it does lead to sort of a bigger conundrum for me, which is thinking about um, even if I if I take an area in my sample that looks like it has high rates of uh, threats of violence, it's not clear to me sort of theoretically whether that's a place that's just short of actual violence, or if it's sort of categor categorically different that there are institutions in place or some sort of social norms or whatever that are keeping actual violence at bay, even while sort of allowing threats of violence to be sort of uh, rampant uh, if we believe the, the 22 percent. Yeah, that's interesting. I think if you've got a lot of work, interesting follow-up work that you could do there that people would, would certainly enjoy. Absolutely. I know that you noted that though the question about threats of violence was sensitive, you did have people follow up and talk openly about instances uh, where their land had been threatened and there was the potential for violence. Does that give you any sense of where these issues might come more prevalent? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it was it was quite interesting that, um, you know, I had my survey teams report back to me as we did this and they did, they did say like, we asked this question and we told respondents, you know, you only need to tell me the number of items, but uh, some people just sort of volunteer the information that they had threatened land, uh, threatened someone because of a land conflict, or they had chased someone off their land, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I think I am interested in this question, and I, I don't, I don't think I, I. It's certainly a question that's been addressed before in other contexts. This idea of what are the rules or norms uh, in place that allow for a certain level of uh, not animosity, but sort of a conflict, interpersonal conflict that do include threats, but that prevent it from tipping over the line towards actual violence. And there are certainly cases in Uganda communities that have experienced some, uh, in recent years, some real, you know, terrible violence related to land. So, you know, from an academic point of view, there is variation there, you know, some places where it has spilled over and other places where it has not. Um, and I, I do have some inclinations uh, or thoughts about where, what might be going on at least in some places. So for example, I was really fascinated uh, in, in Hoima district. Actually, this is true across the board. Um, you know, I was asking people about the titling process and the titling process does involve uh, the neighbors. So it's not just an interval decision um, that one landholder makes. Uh, they have to prove that there are no ongoing disputes with neighbors over say land boundaries. Uh, and so I think it that rule not only has implications for land titling, but in general um, might be a way in which uh, disputes are kept from getting uh, too out of hand. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Again, um, I'm looking forward to to the reading the final piece. Just one more look at one of your works. I know that you worked on a recent piece with Forum co-founder Victor Minaldo about kind of applying this property rights paradigm. 
slightly differently to not just to individual outcomes, but to economic and political outcomes more generally. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that paper and how you and Victor differentiate your view from stereotypical view that natural resource rents are a detriment or a barrier to economic and political growth. Yeah, sure. So um, I first worked with Victor a few years ago to co-author a chapter reviewing the resource curse. Uh, and I was drawn to the topic both because of my my interest that I discussed earlier about the, the natural world and the, the politics thereof. But I was also, you know, I was taking a class with Victor and we were reading about the resource curse and I was, I was sort of like puzzled by it and skeptical and it just didn't, it was compelling to part of me, but that part of me was just thinking like, I don't understand exactly how this works and why it works in some places and not others and why, why the oil more than any other resource. So, uh, and of course, Victor, himself has a skeptical view of, of the causal logic mm-hmm. of the resource curse. So it, we were sort of uh, a natural pair to work together maybe, or at least he saw it that way, uh, which was good for me. And so most resource curse literature, except for maybe the newest iterations, but also political development literature in general, places a lot of weight on the importance of economic rents, right? So basically the idea is um, the easier it is for states to appropriate rents, uh, the less they rely, rely on building up state capacity to tax their populations and making democratic concessions uh, in exchange for those tax revenues. So uh, basically, wh- where there are economic rents available, that's bad news for state capacity, for institutions, and for democracy, among other outcomes that uh, people associate with the resource curse. So uh, we argue in this this latest article we wrote together, it's really a, a theoretical piece for the most part. We argue that you know most of this work, both in the resource curse literature as well as broader um, political economy work, doesn't distinguish among different kinds of rents. So we uh, lay out the differences between Ricardian rents, market power rents, and quasi rents, uh, and make the case that each are different in how they're generated, uh, for how states appropriate them, and for the implications for um, especially economic outcomes. So it's a piece, uh, a piece that um, is we're making the case for why we should take these distinctions seriously when thinking about questions of economic development. Yeah, and I'd recommend for any listeners to check that piece out. It's a very difficult kind of complicated theory to talk through on a podcast without looking at the graphs, but they have some wonderful graphs that, that would help if people are interested. Certainly. Well, I appreciate you coming on again. Um, I would just have one final question, and that's about kind of your current work and where you see the field of land tenure and property rights in Africa heading. And if you have any ideas for broader topics that you feel are the next barrier to be breached, and if you're working on any of those things. Sure. So I definitely, well, first of all, in the literature, you know, there's this whole subset of uh, literature on sort of public administration about property registration and like the the fine details of how that works and the different technologies that exist for that, that I think has been, and I've certainly succumbed to this, has not been integrated well into uh, broader sort of theoretical discussions of uh, the value of property, uh, property rights, private property rights versus customary tenure. And I am definitely interested in uh, customary authority and the ways in which they wield access to common pool resources, so like forests and water sources, things like that. 
this would help like, uh, let me uh, integrate my, all of my uh, interests in Eleanor Ostrom's work. But think about the, the idea that, you know, that might be another way in which um, authorities wield the access that they have that, or the access that they grant to those common pool resources as a way to encourage people to stick with the customary community, contribute, and not to title their land. Separately, sort of the moving away from land tenure, there's a couple more things I'm interested in pursuing. First, uh, I was, it's sort of related to actually um, the ethnic engagement behaviors I was talking about earlier. I, I noticed and had discussions um, with my research assistant in Uganda about mobile money platforms and the way that, the way that has changed, you know, there are a lot of people that go to the city, right, to do, to work and then, but that still have land back home in the rural areas or like engage with their neighbors and family back home. And uh, it used to be, you would have to travel home all the time to go to weddings and funerals and contribute to graduations, whatever. And now you can send money over mobile money platforms. And it's both a way for people to not travel so much, but also it's easy for people to monitor who's contributing and who's not. Uh, so I'm interested in to see how that, um, what effects that has on customary authority. Uh, and lastly, uh, one of the things I encountered was uh, one of the customary communities in which uh, I was doing research was in the process of uh, actually codifying all of the customary law, like really writing it out, creating a document that could be disseminated within the customary community. Uh, and I'm very interested in that process of um, at what at what point and why do a, a customary community, a sort of uh, an institution that is informal in the sense of many things being unwritten, uh, what's the motivation for finally getting to the point of we need to write all this stuff out, codify it, and make it uh, similar across uh, the whole geographic space of our community? So those are sort of the big ideas that. I'll hopefully be pursuing over the next few years. Great. Well, we look forward to catching up with you then. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Will. Yeah, thanks for, for having sure. me. Of course. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.